1: Jim Campbell and Ed Groover, authors of Hell with the Lid Off.
0: Ed Groover and Jim Campbell are the authors of Hell with the Lid Off, Inside the Fierce Rivalry between the 1970s Oakland Raiders and Pittsburgh Steelers. Jim, why did you write this book?
1: Well, I really didn't write it. I co-wrote it at, at best. I think the genesis of it was that I had done a story on Franco's Immaculate Reception for the Lancaster newspaper, and Ed thought that it would be a good idea to expand and get into the rivalry as a whole. At the time, I did not think I could do the whole book by myself, so I suggested that Ed and I collaborate, which I'm glad we did. In many, many ways, I was just along for the ride. Ed did a lot of the nuts and bolts, in fact, most of the nuts and bolts research. I just kind of refreshed my memory of what I remember, what I saw, heard, and whatever. Kind of like uh, the, uh, I've forgotten the name of the author, but she was a young girl who was in the battle of Gettysburg and her title, the title of her book was What I Saw and Heard at Gettysburg. Well, I guess my contribution was what I saw and heard in the rivalry, not only the Immaculate Reception, but other things that took place between 72 and uh, 79. So that's kind of how it got the, uh, got the book started. And Ed and I, he would write a, a chapter And I would then write my reminiscences of it. And uh, in some ways, it may have seemed a little redundant, but I think what I did was flesh out the things that Ed was writing about from a personal standpoint. So a long answer to a short question.
0: Ed, what was it that drew you to this story? Um, There were a
2: number of factors. Uh, You know, I had grown up. Uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, and the Steelers-Raiders rivalry um, from 1972 through 1976 really dominated professional football. Uh, It's still considered probably the greatest, uh, at least one of the greatest rivalries, not only in professional football, but in all sports. And there are many reasons for that. The number of great players, uh, the great teams on both sides, Uh, the coaches, the Hall of Fame coaches, Hall of Fame owners, um, you know, the great games that they had, they uh, transcended football. They were grudge matches to a large degree, and the way they played out, the violence of those games, uh, of course, has been legislated out, but it really did change the way pro football is today. And what we have now with um, the emphasis on offense is really due largely to what we saw back then with the Steelers and Raiders rivalries. I mean, they those games were so physical, so brutal, that the NFL had to do something to change uh, the way the game was being played because of the number of injuries and just because of the, the, the pure violence on the football field. But for those of us who watched it at that time, it was uh, great theater, um, great football, and it's something that, uh, you know, because of the legislation in the NFL now, we'll never see it again.
0: Now, Jim, you had mentioned kind of how the, how the book is structured where there was a, you know, each chapter has a, a section that tells the story of it and then you offer your comments on it. And I kept thinking of you two as uh, announcers, well, one offering play-by-play and the other doing the color commentating d- during it. Was that in your mind during, at all during the book?
1: You know, I never thought of that until you mentioned it. And I guess uh, if, if anything, I was the, the color guy and hopefully was somewhat colorful in my writing. A lot of it was just bringing back great, great memories. When Ed mentioned about the number of Hall of Famers, I don't know the precise number, but I think it's over two dozen. I think uh, each franchise, the Raiders and the Steelers, had at least a dozen or more Hall of Famers, and people like Andy Russell and uh, Elsie Greenwood and a couple of other guys should even be considered, along with some of the Raiders. Uh, I must admit that my focus was more on the Steelers, and uh, I I will let Ed come up with the Raiders that should be in the Hall of Fame that aren't, if there are any.
0: Now, Jim, you worked for the Steelers organization. How how did you start working there?
1: Well, that's, um, again, a long answer. I had always been interested in pro football, even as a kid. I remember in college uh, when uh, players were not eligible as freshmen; you only had a three-year career, and coaches were lack, uh, not prone to pay playing uh, sophomores. There was an old saying that for every sophomore in your lineup, it's a game lost, and so. Unless a guy had a successful, uh, sensational sophomore season, you didn't know much about him until his junior or senior year, and then they were gone. And as a 10-year-old, I thought, gee, I was living uh, outside of Philadelphia at the time. I said, you know, the nice thing about the Eagles, number one, they were winning, and number two, you know, the Tommy Thompsons and the Steve Van Buren's. They were going to be around for years and years. So I was drawn to pro football. And I started researching the draft because the NFL did not have uh, any uh, concrete and there was no publication on the draft or whatever. So I started researching the draft and came up with the first draft, which the NFL said Uh, The only thing we have are names and schools and they did not uh, guarantee or even suggest that the sequence in which the names were listed was the actual sequence. So I researched that by contacting players, by looking at miles and miles of New York Times microfilm and came up with the first draft. Uh, and it was the way the NFL had it listed, whether they knew it or not, and they didn't. So uh, at first, uh, they, were, they would send me a letter and say, gee, the information we have is very sketchy at best and would not guarantee anything. Then when I fleshed it out for them, they said, can you do the same thing from 1937 to 1942? And I did. And After I had compiled those drafts, I sent the information to the teams that were drafting back then. Um, Many of them didn't have it. So in a way, uh, I was a known quantity. When I got to Pittsburgh in 1970, I went to their offices to see if there was anything part-time I could do. And Ed Kiley, who remembered the fact that I had sent the 36 through 42 drafts, remembered me it was late in the year there was nothing then but they said that come back in in the next season maybe there will be something so um, about august of that year joe gordon who was the public relations director at the time uh, said you could be a game day assistant and what i would do i was on the sidelines with a two-way radio and i would get the injuries from the trainers both Steelers and their opponent and I would also get the specific penalty uh, from usually the head linesman and this was a time before the referees were miked and the genesis of that was Pete Rozelle the commissioner felt that if you were paying 20 bucks for a seat at the stadium if you can imagine a $20 seat in a stadium but this was a early 70s you were entitled to know what the people watching at home on their couch for nothing were so it was important for me to get the specific information what the penalty was who it was called on and get that to the press box uh, for the PA announcer to relay that information before the next play started so that was what my assigned duties were, other things I did was just uh, line the players up for uh, the pregame introductions, and as I said earlier, uh, that was part of my job. It wasn't trying to get on camera, so that's basically how that uh, transpired. What was it like to stand on the
0: sidelines during the game? I, what were you seeing and hearing that, say, a fan in, in the stands wouldn't?
1: It it was the best seat in the house. Um, You know, it it was something, the the thing I missed, you did not get the overview that you would get from say a press box or a a second deck seat. But boy, the sound and the fury you could hear, you were part of it. And you would strike up acquaintances with the players. I remember uh, Ray Mansfield, who was a real character. Uh, He was one of my best sideline buddies. And Rocky Blyer, who was still recovering from his Vietnam War injuries, was another one. And uh, I would stand with them, we would watch the game, and sometimes I would offer my commentary to the officials. And one time, uh, I remember it was um, Tony Viteri, who was a headlinesman, and he was the person, the headlinesman was the person that was closest to me uh, on the sidelines. And that was the person I got my information from. And I disagreed with the call on the field. And I said something. And and Tony looked at me and he said, you know, it's really hard to keep law and order out there on the field. And it's even harder if we're getting heat from the sideline. So I was properly chastened. And I refrained from offering my opinions at the time. But the thing that impressed me was all of those officials were really class individuals. Uh, As I said, they could have told me to shut up and get off the sideline, but they were very diplomatic, and they they were really great, classy individuals, very professional. And what wasn't known by many people at the time, and I still don't know if it's known, is that in order to be an NFL official, you had to have a job with an outside income of at least $50,000, which doesn't seem like much now. But in the 60s and 70s, it was significant. And that was to make sure they were above reproach. And it worked. I mean, you had lawyers, you had doctors, you had school administrators, you had college athletic directors, and just really, really substantial, solid citizens. And it was great to work with those people. And then later, when the officials were miked, my job, at least in theory, became obsolete. But the first couple of years, the mics didn't really work that well. So I still needed to be there to get the information and get it upstairs to the PA. But eventually, I was relieved of that job. And if anything, you could say I socialized more on the sidelines and got to know a lot of the players. And the thing that impressed me with the Steelers players at that time, every one of them was a a solid citizen. There were were no clubhouse lawyers. There were no agitators, uh, nothing like that. Uh, They were really great people. And I guess I have to admit that uh, Ed talked about the violence and the really violent and physical play on the field. And I like to think that the Steelers, they were just aggressive players. But the Raiders, they might have been dirty players. And I'm sure if I was working for the Raiders, I would have thought just the opposite. They were aggressive and the Steelers were dirty, but uh, Joe Green. Dwight White, uh, Jack Lambert, all those guys. Just hard-nosed, tough, tough players. And it was just a pleasure to be there, to be down on the field, and to witness that close up and personal. It It was just an unforgettable experience, and the book illustrates that it really was unforgettable. Uh, Nothing pleases me more than to be able to talk about what things were like between the Raiders and the Steelers through the early, mid, late 70s. It was just a time that will never be duplicated, and I'm just so happy that I was a very, very small part of it.
0: Now Ed, uh, when did this rivalry begin? Was it a particular game, a particular season? What was the starting point?
2: The starting point was 1972, uh, December 23rd. It was a playoff between Oakland and Pittsburgh in Three Rivers Stadium. And of course, uh, it was a hard fought game, a very low scoring game. Um, Pittsburgh led 6-0 going into the fourth quarter. They had a couple of Roy Durella field goals. And Ken Stabler, who had been replaced by uh, or did replace Daryl Monica, the Raiders starting quarterback. John Madden had made that call, and Stabler ran uh, 30-odd yards for a touchdown in the fourth quarter to give Oakland a late 7-6 lead, and it came down to Pittsburgh had a fourth and long uh, near midfield, and uh, Terry Bradshaw dropped back to pass, was under pressure, rolled out, um, just got the ball off before he was hit, uh, the ball went downfield to um, Frenchy Fuqua, the Steelers' halfback, and Fuqua and Jack Tatum, the Raiders' safety, collided. The ball, Tatum, and Fuqua all came together at the same time. Uh, there was, uh, it still remains a mystery to this day. Who did the ball ricochet off? Was it off Jack Tatum? Was it off Frenchy Fuqua? Because depending on who it hit at that time, if it had hit Fuqua and ricocheted back to Franco, It would have been deemed an illegal play because you couldn't have the ball going from offensive receiver to offensive receiver at that time under the rules. Tatum always claimed that he didn't hit it, that he hit Fuqua, and that uh, the play should have been ruled illegal. The Raiders still believe that to this day. Uh, John Madden still believes it to this day. But, uh, you know, regardless, Franco caught the ball off a shoe tops out of the air, ran it in for a touchdown, and that became of course the Immaculate Reception and that was the genesis for the Steelers Raiders rivalry that followed. Now they met in the playoffs every year from 72 through 76 and uh, three straight AFC championship games from 74 to 76 and each of those AFC championship games determined not only the AFC champion but the eventual Super Bowl winner as Pittsburgh won in 74 and 75, Oakland in 76. But the rivalry grew out of the Macley reception game, Franco's catch and run for the touchdown.
0: Now did the players and the coaches did did they feel that there was a rivalry or was it more of a media generated thing?
2: Uh, oh no, there was they felt the rivalry, and Jim can attest to this as well. That was uh you know, basically a blood feud between the Steelers and the Raiders. Um, you know, before the Raiders had the rivalry with Pittsburgh, they had rivalries with the Kansas City Chiefs who were in their division. They had rivalries with the Joe Namath Jets, um, but nothing really matched what they had with Pittsburgh. And there's really nothing in NFL history, uh, even other great rivalries like the Packers and the Bears, or regional rivalries um, of that nature. Nothing really compares to what Pittsburgh and Oakland had, because it wasn't really a regional rivalry. They're on opposite coasts, but just a rivalry for supremacy, not only in the American Football Conference, but as it was shown in the Super Bowl, it was the rivalry to determine the best team in pro football.
0: Uh, Jim, were you on the sidelines for the Immaculate Reception game?
1: <laughs> you bet I was. What I, did, what did I, you see? I've made a living off of that. that that's really uh, what what started Ed and I, our collaboration, was the fact that I had done a story for the Lancaster newspaper on the 40th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception. And uh, Ed said that uh, to this day Tatum doesn't believe it, John Madden doesn't believe that the ball came off of Tatum, Jim Campbell believes it. Mm -hmm. And there's a professor from Carnegie Mellon who broke the play down uh, frame by frame, and he believes it. And what I said in the beginning and maintain now that if you look at the trajectory of the ball, it just flew off of uh, Tatum. It came back like a shot. It was a line drive. It wasn't a pop-up. It wasn't a flutter ball or anything. It, it really ricocheted. And to me, if the ball had hit Fuqua, it would have continued downfield. It would not have bounced back toward Franco. And something else, uh, Phil Villapiano, who is no shrinking violet, if you've ever seen him on NFL films or any place, he maintains that he was clipped by John McMahon, And if you look at the footage, you can see that McMahon's head is to the front of of, uh, Villapiano, and it was not a clip or a block in the back. And something else, John Madden says, they didn't know what happened. They went into the dugout and called upstairs to get a ruling from Art McNally, who was a supervisor of officials and who was in attendance at the game. But if you look at the footage, you'll see that Fred Swearingen, who was the referee, signals a touchdown. So there's a lot depending on your viewpoint of what you think about the Immaculate Reception. But I was there firsthand. I remember when... uh, Elsie uh, Greenwood or no Dwight White got uh, dinged on the play uh, before uh, Stabler uh, snaked his way into the end zone and they put, put a rookie defensive lineman Craig Hanneman in and he got hooked inside and Stabler went around the left end and into the uh, end zone for a touchdown. The extra point made it 7-6 and I remember thinking well maybe we can run the kickoff back and and get a field goal. But the kickoff only went to about the 35-yard line, and then uh, Bradshaw misconnected on the first three passes. So it's fourth down, and I'm thinking, oh boy. And I remember standing there with Ray Mansfield, the great storyteller, the old ranger, and the play occurred, and we both looked at each other, and at the same time said, I saw it, but I don't expletive believe it. And then Mansfield, being the raconteur that he was, said, hey, we better get down to the sideline or down to the end zone and get into the pictures. And somewhere in the vaults of NFL films, you see Mansfield trundling down the sidelines looking back every 10 yards to see where the cameras are and then continuing on his way into the sidelines and it was just bedlam it was unbelievable and the thing about it joe gordon the steelers uh, publicity director at the time had given me a locker room pass and told me to go into the raiders locker room after the game he said you don't have to ask any questions just get some quotes answers to what the other writers are asking. So I went into the locker room and it was desolate. Everybody else, all the writers were over in the Steelers locker room. And I remember Wayne Valley, who was a minority owner, uh, came up to John Madden. Madden was just sitting in front of his locker with his head down, smoking a cigarette. Madden put his hand on Madden or Valley put his hand on Madden's shoulder and said John you deserve better and after that there was nothing for me to do so I left the Raiders locker room went over to the Steelers locker room and I told Joe Gordon I said Joe I'm sorry but I I have no quotes there were none and he said that's okay Jim I don't think the Raiders are the story this day so that really was my experience with the Immaculate Reception. And as I said, I, I did some freelance writing and I've written several stories about it. And uh, again, it was probably the genesis of to hell, hell with the lid off. So pretty happy that I was a little bit a part of history at that time.
0: Ed, uh, Art Rooney, senior of the Pittsburgh Steelers owner, missed the Immaculate Reception. What happened?
2: He was on his way to the Uh, elevator the stadium elevator to go down to uh, the Steelers locker room and console his players on you know what he and a lot of people thought was a a very tough late defeat to the Raiders so he was Mr. Rooney was in the elevator when the play occurred he heard the commotion and I believe it was a a security guard uh, told him that you know started congratulating him on the victory and Mr. Rooney you know not having seen the play didn't quite know what the, uh, the gentleman was speaking about. And it wasn't until he left the elevator and got down to the locker room that he had learned of, of Franco's immaculate reception.
0: Now, the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers during this uh, time period that we're talking about was Chuck Knoll. Uh, when did he first come on board?
1: Well, Knoll was uh, hired for the 1969 season. And at the time, he was the uh, defensive coordinator with the Baltimore Colts. And if you recall, uh, in January of '69, the Colts were beaten by the Jets in uh, Super Bowl III, which was probably the biggest upset in pro football up until that time. Uh, it was the uh, guaranteed win by Joe Namath, and the ruling or the rumor was that um, Clive Rush was the offensive coordinator of the jets and as i said chuck knoll was the defensive coordinator of the colts and the winning coach or the winning coordinator of the super bowl was probably the prime candidate uh, to be hired uh, by whatever team had a vacancy and clive rush was taken by the new england patriots didn't last long and chuck knoll was chosen by the Rooney family to head up the Steelers and he lasted from 1969 into the 80s so um, that probably Chuck Knoll was probably as instrumental as anyone uh, in the success of the Steelers he was just a, a classy classy individual low keyed sought no publicity whenever uh, opportunities for endorsements or commercials were offered to Noel, uh, he would just say, give it to players, let the players do it. There was one time when uh, Hershey Foods offered him $100,000 just to use his facsimile autograph on Hershey bar wrappers, and he turned that down. And the one thing he did do as a favor to a friend was a commercial for a bank in Pittsburgh and he just was not comfortable with that and never again did anything that was at least any hinted at anything commercial. He was always, let the players do it. He was low-key. Um, he he kind of seemed to be aloof because he didn't get close to his players. And his philosophy was that if I become their buddy, when it's time for me to cut them, I might not do it. I might keep a guy around a year longer or two than he should be here. And I'd rather not be in that position. But he really cared. I can remember um, through Joe Gordon, who is a a mentor of mine, whether he knows it or not, um, he asked me to do an article on Chuck Allen for the Steeler program. The writer that was assigned it was covering the Pirates also, and it was the year that the Pirates and the uh, Orioles were in the World Series. It was 1971, and the Pirates uh, upset the Avalcar by winning a few more games, and they thought, so Ira Miller was not available to write the article, and I did. So I I interviewed uh, Chuck Allen, obviously, but also Chuck Knoll, and I can remember a few uh, weeks after the... Uh, article appeared, I was down at a Steeler practice and uh, Chuck Knoll came walking over to me and I thought, oh boy, what did I do now? And he said, good job on the Chuck Allen article and it it just gave me a feeling it's really hard to describe because Knoll, as good a guy as he was, and he really was a good, good man, uh, wasn't lavish in his praise of anyone. And another time, as I said, Uh, my job was to line up the players for the pregame introductions. And um, it was late in the season. It was in 1974. It was the year that Stallworth and Swan were rookies. Uh, Dave Smith and Ron Shanklin were the uh, starting uh, wide receivers, but they were playing the Cincinnati Bengals who weren't that good at the time. And uh, they went with... uh, uh, Lynn Swan and John Saulworth as opposed to the original starters Shanklin and Dave Smith well I had known this from the uh, PA announcer Ray Downey had told me that but I was in a uh, runway leading out to the stadium and Noel and the team had started out on the field and Noel got a few steps up the, the runway and he came back and he said jim you know we're going with the kids at whiteout and i said yes uh, ray down he told me that but it was just amazing to me his attention to detail uh, that who am i i'm mean, very insignificant and my job was probably even more insignificant but he wanted to make sure that i knew what players were being lined up for the introductions Another time, in talking to Andy Russell, who did a great job in writing the foreword of this book, Andy said that when Noel first took over, he met with the players and he said, there's a reason why you guys haven't been winning football games, and the reason is that not many of you are very good, and we're gonna have to get rid of a lot of you. And he said that Noel looked at him after watching some film and said, when you line up in this defense, I want you to move a foot further to the outside and an inch back. And Russell was just incredulous. He says, you know, what is this is really minute. This is minutiae at its best. But Russell said he did it, and it worked, and he never questioned Noel after that. And that's, that's just the way the players were. Uh, there was a motto, I don't know if it was just in my mind or it was really in the minds of the players, but I, I thought in Chuck we trust. And they did, and the results were self-evident. They were there. It was amazing. And it was just great to be part of what was going on in those days.
0: The Ed, on the other side of this rivalry was uh, the Oakland Raiders, and of course one of the key personalities there was Al Davis. Uh, he was a, He started off as a head coach in in Oakland before he was an owner. Uh, what was his life like? Uh,
2: very interesting. Um, Al Davis, uh, you know, to piggyback on what uh, Jim was talking about, Al Davis, uh, you know, the head of the Raiders, Chuck Noll, head coach of the Steelers, had a long history together. They had been part of the American Football League uh, with the San Diego Chargers in the 1960s, and had actually both been on the same coaching staff under head coach Sid Gilman um, on a 1963 Charger team that won the AFL championship and that a lot of people at that time considered to be the first AFL champion that could really be seriously considered uh, to be a worthy opponent for the NFL champion at that time. In fact, Otto Graham, who the former Cleveland Browns quarterback and later the coach of the Redskins said that if the Chargers could play the NFL champion Chicago Bears in the Super Bowl that year. Now, of course, Super Bowl didn't start till the end of the 1966 season, but Otto Graham said that if the Chargers could play the Bears in the Super Bowl at that time, San Diego would likely win, which is a pretty um, amazing statement at that time because most NFL people looked down on the American Football League. They didn't think it was as good. Um, and they didn't think they would have a worthy opponent for the NFL for several years, and that was kind of proven out by the Lombardi Packers in the first two Super Bowls. Uh, Al Davis's Oakland Raiders, of course, won the AFL championship in 67. Um, They went 13 and one that year, and they were generally considered to be the best AFL team to that time, and they played the Packers in Super Bowl II in Miami. It was Vince Lombardi's last game as Green Bay head coach uh, the Packers won rather handily, 33-14. to 14. And Al Davis said afterward, you know, the, the difference isn't between the Packers or between the NFL and the AFL, it's between the Packers and the rest of pro football. But Al Davis um, was very instrumental in the American Football League, he was very instrumental in the merger when Al Davis was named uh, commissioner of the American Football League in 1966 his aggressive tactics to sign away some of the NFL's best players, particularly quarterbacks, uh, John Brody of the 49ers, Roman Gabriel of the Rams, and then other players like Paul Horning, the halfback of the Green Bay Packers. Um, That really helped force the merger between the the two warring leagues because they realized at that time they just couldn't continue to pay out these huge bonuses and these huge salaries, and they couldn't continue to have players jumping from league to league. So Pete Rozelle and... Uh, Kansas City Chiefs owner and AFL founder Lamar Hunt got together with Tech Schramm of the Dallas Cowboys and they hammered out a merger agreement that um, came about in 1970 but was preceded by the four AFL-NFL Super Bowls. So Al Davis was very instrumental in bringing about legitimacy not only to the Oakland Raiders organization but also to the American Football League. And his relationship with Chuck Noll. The fact that they had coached together is just one of the layers of this whole Steelers Raiders rivalry. And, um, you know, it should be mentioned, too, that Al Davis, uh, for all his controversies, was a big fan of Steelers owner Art Rooney. You know, Al may not have gotten along with a lot of other NFL owners, but he genuinely liked and respected Mr. Rooney.
0: Now, you'd mentioned before the large number of Hall of Fame players on both of these teams. Uh, Talk a little bit about the Pittsburgh Steelers and the importance of their scouting department in terms of fighting these players, Jim.
1: Well, the unsung hero of the uh, the Steelers' success was Bill Nunn. He was a sports writer, as was his father for the Pittsburgh Courier, which was an African-American newspaper. And each year, they picked an All-America team from the historically black colleges. And Nunn knew about these people and he was not uh, hired by the Steelers by that time. And he would take the information that he had and not necessarily relay it to the Steelers, but to other teams. And he was a person who recommended uh, Deacon Jones, a hall of fame defensive end uh, for the Los Angeles Rams to the Rams. Uh, Deacon was playing at Mississippi Valley College and um, no one knew that. No one was really looking at the what are now known as the historically uh, black colleges, the, uh, the Gramblings, the Jackson State, uh, Fisk, uh, Alcorn A&M, and, and the other schools like that. But uh, he also or realized that Roosevelt Brown, who was a uh, all pro hall of fame, offensive tackle with the Giants uh, f- from uh, Morgan State. He recommended him to the Giants. So when Noel got to the Steelers, they made uh, Bill Nunn a part-time scout and then eventually a full-time scout. And he he worked the black colleges. He, he discovered the L.C. Greenwoods, the Dwight Whites, uh, those types of players. and. So thorough was he in doing his due diligence that after watching a Grambling ball game on a Saturday afternoon, he would go to the dance that night just to see if the huge offensive defensive linemen see if they were nimble on their feet. Because if you if you talk to any a line coach, offense or defense. They will tell you can he move his feet does he bend at the waist and and this is what nunn was uh, reinforcing with his scouting reports by doing little things like that and when you think about it the steelers success is really based on attention to detail they're scouting they're drafting jack butler who was in charge of um, Blesto, which is a scouting combine, was based in Pittsburgh. And uh, Jack Butler, his whole uh, premise was to evaluate these guys correctly. He was just bent out of shape as much by the success of a Mike Wagner who was a low draft choice as he would have been of a high number one draft choice that didn't pan out and I remember him telling me that he says we just strive for a true evaluation whether it's high or low we want to be right and uh, Mike Wagner who was rated pretty low and drafted even lower was turned out to be an all-pro and one of those marginal stealers that is knocking on the door of the Hall of Fame, but so far hasn't gotten there. Going back to Al Davis, when uh, Ed was talking about him, uh, the the Raiders drafted a running quarterback from Susquehanna. I graduated from Susquehanna in 63. Don Green was the quarterback. And uh, he was was drafted by the Raiders. He was the 35th player uh, taken in the 1964 draft by the American Football League. And that tells you how thorough their scouting was when you think of what Susquehanna was in those days. And for personal reasons, Don Green left the Raiders training camp after being there for just a week. And 10 years later, when I was working at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the Raiders were in the, uh, the, the preseason game, the Hall of Fame game. And I got to meet Al Davis, and I introduced myself. I said, uh, Mr. Davis, I'm Jim Campbell from Susquehanna University. And he stopped in mid-handshake, and he just looked at me, and he said, you know, Don Green could have made our team. And it just blew me away. I mean, this is a draft choice that was in the Raider camp for a week 10 years ago. And Al Davis instantaneously recalled that. So. Tells you a little bit about what Al Davis was all about, and uh, it was just what made the rivalry what it was. It was just it was hell with the lid off, and let me explain that title a little bit. I thought, and many other people thought, that hell with the lid off was a description of Pittsburgh, by made by Charles Dickens, the English author, but it was made by. Um, a Boston writer by the name of James Parton, who was writing in Atlantic Monthly. It was in the January 1868 issue, and with the steel mills booming and the coal mines booming and everything, uh, all the night sky would be lit up by the steel mills. And that was Paxson's uh, description of Pittsburgh, hell with the lid off. and It really was an appropriate title, and I'm glad that Ed selected it. Thank you, Ed. No problem, Jim.
0: Ed, uh, let's look at the Oakland Raiders. What was their draft philosophy? How did they end up with so many great players?
1: Um,
2: Draft philosophy was different than uh, the Steelers. Uh, The Steelers would draft for need. The Raiders would draft the best athlete available at that time. A lot of that was due to Al Davis's football philosophy. I mean, I've heard it many times on NFL films and elsewhere that, uh, you know, the Raiders, uh, they like the horizontal game on offense. They want to stretch you not only vertically across the field with wide running plays, they want to stretch you horizontally with deep running plays. Uh, Defense, they favored um, getting to the quarterback. A lot of pressure on the quarterback in 1967. They set what was then a pro football record sacks in his season. And they also favored man-to-man coverage, and they had arguably uh, the best man-to-man cover man at that time, Willie Brown, who Al Davis had traded for from the Denver Broncos. But the Raider, uh, the Raider approach to the draft under um, Al Davis and head coach John Madden was to draft uh, the best athletes possible at that time.
0: Now you mentioned in the book also that uh, many of these players would sit on the sidelines for for several years. Kenny Stabler uh, didn't start for the first five seasons. Uh, how do players take to that? They they took to it. Um, you know, it, I guess it'd be
2: a case by case basis. I know Stabler chafed, um, you know, backing up Darrell uh for a number of years. But LaMonica was, uh, you know, he was the the epitome of the Al Davis philosophy of going deep. You know, he was nicknamed the Mad Bomber for a reason. He liked to you'd take a seven-step seven drop and, you know, heave the ball downfield. Um, he had a rocket launcher for a right arm. Kenny Stabler did not have that kind of arm. Um, he was a southpaw. He he was better uh, as a precision passer than Darrell Monica was, and he was more accurate on medium-range uh, routes. Um, But, you know, depending on who you talk to, depending on the players, you know, obviously everyone who's in pro football is there for a reason. They're good enough to play. They want to play. But when they're with a winning organization like the Oakland Raiders, you know, they're willing to bide their time to a degree, um, you know, as long as they believe they're going to get their chance sooner or later.
0: Now, Franco Harris was one of the the key players uh, on the Steelers during those years. Uh, Jim, what made him so important?
1: Well, he, he came came there as a rookie and just took over. And it's interesting how he got to the Steelers, because Chuck Knoll was all set to draft Robert Newhouse, uh, a fullback out of uh, University of Houston, who ended up with, a, uh, with the Dallas Cowboys and had a great career. But Artie Rooney Jr., Art Jr., uh, was a scout, he was a chief scout, and he was sold on Franco. Franco was not a practice player, but he was a gamer. When the lights went on, Franco went on. And he kept badgering, I guess is a word you'd use, for Noel to take Franco instead of Newhouse. And again, a testament to Noel, uh, his personality, and his philosophy and not being a my way or the highway guy or I'm always right and I'm the head coach and I know what I'm doing. He listened to Artie and they took Franco and Franco just burst on the scene like gangbusters. He was unbelievable I mean he he had more 100 yard rushing games as a rookie uh, broke Jim Brown's record and it was just amazing to see him and he he was. interesting character study he was a loner Uh, he didn't mingle with the players when the defense was out on the field he just paced and he he had a look in his eye I remember a game against the Chiefs Um, something happened and it might have been an interception or whatever and Franco just had that look he was just pacing he looked like a Roman gladiator very handsome and when he he had that look in his eye and and he went out on the field and i think he broke like a 40-yard run for a touchdown and and really won the game and what was so interesting about what i call the look is i was watching uh, super bowl 13 against the uh, cowboys it was played in miami and i was working in los angeles with nfl properties and it was a play where um I forget exactly what happened, but Franco Franco had the look. You could you could see it even through the television camera. And he got the ball. He broke off tap, tackle on one of the Steelers' patented trap plays. He used the umpire as a blocker and just roared into the end zone. Uh, again, you know, he had the look. There was nothing that was going to stop Franco on that play. So, uh, and he, he, was, he was the backbone of that offense. I mean, the first two Super Bowls were the defense and the running game. And the last two Super Bowls, uh, 17 and 18, were the ones where Bradshaw uh, made use of Swan and Stalworth in the passing game. But up until that time, uh, for 10 solid years, Franco was, he was, he was a stealer offense. Ed, uh,
0: punchers don't get a lot of attention, but Ray Guy certainly did. Uh, wh- what was unique about him?
2: Um, just his ability to, you know, continually pin the opposing offense deep in their own territory and have you know, make them <coughs> drive, you know, 70, 80, 90 yards against a very good Raider defense. Um, you know, Jim was mentioning some of the Steelers who should be in the Hall of Fame, and, and he's absolutely right about that. You know some of the raiders uh, on that defensive unit could also be considered for the hall, and you know one member in particular on the offense was Cliff Branch, who um, you know was one of those speed guys that Al Davis loved, and another guy who was you know one of the top athletes in the draft, and um, you know even the, the Steelers who played against Branch, Branch, uh, Mel Blunt, um, Donny Shell, Hall of Famers in their own right. Joe Green, uh, Lambert, Ham, they all say, you know, if there's anybody that, who's not in the Hall of Fame, who should be in the Hall of Fame, it's Cliff Branch. But to get back to Ray Guy, um, you know, he was, uh, he was a weapon. He was definitely a weapon for the Raiders. He was a weapon in, in much the same way that uh, Hank Stram's Kansas City Chiefs had a weapon in a punter named uh, Drell Wilson. Uh, who was all AFL and then later all NFL when the leagues merged for a number of years. But uh, Guy was unique in his ability to not only boom kicks but also to place them. You know, it's one thing to boom a kick. It's another to be able to place it, you know, a coffin corner kick, so it's called, and to make the opposing offense have to drive almost the length of the field time and time again against a very physical, very good uh, very hard-hitting Raider defense.
0: Now, you mentioned it a few times in the book, but it's not specifically about the rivalry, but uh, you mentioned the Heidi game. Uh, what was that? Uh, that was a game played between the
2: Raiders and the Jets, and that goes back to what I mentioned before about the Raiders having numerous rivals before they, they had the rivalry with the Steelers in the 70s. But the Heidi game, uh, 1968, it was late in the season. Uh, the Jets were visiting the Oakland Coliseum. Uh, it was a shootout between uh you know two uh gunslingers at quarterback uh, Broadway Joe Namath for the Jets and Darryl Monica the Mad Bomber as I mentioned before for the Raiders um it turned out to be the Jets Super Bowl season and it's one of the most uh memorable games I guess one of the most memorable endings that no one ever saw because uh the Jets were leading the Raiders late in the game it was a late afternoon game from Oakland and uh, the television NBC cut away from the game at 7 o'clock to broadcast the children's TV special Heidi. Now, people on the West Coast could still see the game, but everybody in the, uh, on the East Coast couldn't, and in fact uh, Wee Bubank, who was the coach of the New York Jets, his wife called him after the game to congratulate him on the victory because everyone, the Jets were leading late in the game when it, when it was cut away, but the Raiders scored two touchdowns in, I think it was less than a minute, to uh, beat New York. I th- believe the final score is 43 to 32. And, um, you know, when we got the call from his wife, he's like, well, you know, what are you talking about? We lost the game. But that uh, Heidi game was instrumental in uh, uh, CBS, NBC, ABC, all the major networks. Uh, they made the decision then and there because of the outcry following the Heidi game that they would never again cut away from an NFL game until it was completed.
0: Now this time period was uh, one characterized by a lot of colorful nicknames for teams and parts of teams. Uh, The Electric Company was the the offensive line of the Buffalo Bills because they turned on the juice Mm -hmm. with O.J. Simpson there. Uh, The Purple People Eaters with the Minnesota Vikings, the Orange Crush with the Denver Broncos. Do do both of you have or either of you have a favorite nickname from that time period?
1: Well, I think the Steel Curtain was very apt. Uh, Those guys were just unbelievable. It it was just amazing to watch them and to hear the fans uh, after say a three and out, they would come off the field and there was something like it would be an electric shock or something that you would hear in your ears. I mean, you know, talk about the, the crowd, the roar of the crowd being deafening. It wasn't deafening in the sense that you couldn't hear. It was all you could hear, and as I said, there were these like wavelengths of electric shocks or something. It, it was just an unbelievable thing, but uh, I like that uh, as a nickname. Um, the I, I forget who the team was. Uh, might have been the Raiders. They had a uh, their secondary all four the cornerbacks and the safeties were all African-Americans, and, and they were known as the soul patrol. So it just seems that uh, the media journalists particularly had to have a nickname for everybody. So uh, yeah, there were a lot of them, but the ones you mentioned were certainly were among the best. Ed, did you have a favorite nickname from that time period?
2: You know, I would agree with Jim on the steel curtain. It's certainly one of the the most memorable nicknames. I mean you say steel curtain nowadays, and people immediately think of, you know, Joe Green and Ernie Holmes and Dwight White, L.C. Greenwood. I mean, you could name all 11 starters on that defense because unlike uh, the modern NFL, you didn't have players switching out on each and every down. Now the game is so specialized that you have players playing, um, you know, maybe first down and then a new batch comes in on second, third, and so on. Back then, you know, with the Steelers and with other teams, the same 11 guys were there whether it was first and 10 or, you know, third and 20. You know, Ham, Lambert, uh, Shell, Blunt, Andy Russell, they were all on the field for, uh, for every down. And that allowed you as a viewer and for Jim as a person who was there on the sidelines and worked with the Steelers, allowed you to, to really get to know these players, um, become familiar with their styles of play, and really appreciate just how good they were
1: if i could add um, the the steeler defense of that time uh, 10 of the 11 players made a pro bowl during that era and the only one who didn't was ernie holmes and you could make a very strong case that he should have but uh, there were times where 9 10 11 steelers were going to the pro bowl and that was just kind of unheard of. I, I, there were several years in a row when uh, Jack Ham, Jack Lambert, and Andy Russell uh, were the starting linebackers for the AFC in the Pro Bowl. So uh, it was just unbelievable quality of football, uh, not only the Steelers, but the Raiders and many of the other teams playing in the NFL at the time. I used to think that the 1950s were a great era for the uh, for this for the uh, NFL. In fact, when I worked at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in the early 70s, um, the I think 80 percent of the enshrinees in the Hall of Fame at that time had played at least part of their career in the 50s but when you get into the more modern era the 70s the 80s and certainly today the players are just unbelievable and it's a privilege to watch three games on a sunday another one on tuesday and uh, another one on monday so uh, we're really living in a great time as far as sports is concerned and i truly hope that the country and the sports world gets back to normal whatever that normal may be, quickly. Now
0: yeah, we only have just a couple of minutes left. Ed, how did this rivalry come to an end? Uh, ended um, in the 1976
2: uh, AFC Championship game. Uh, the Raiders finally broke through. They had lost the previous two championships to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, they rematched in uh, Oakland in 76. And I should preface that by saying uh, uh, schedule makers really indulge your sense of drama by having the Steelers and Raiders open this season, the regular season that year in, in Oakland, and the Raiders came back and uh, earned a very dramatic victory in that, in that opener. For the AFC Championship game, um, 76 Steelers are generally considered uh, one of the best defensive units of all time, uh, set a record for shutouts, but they went into that game hampered on offense. Uh, the entire backfield of Franco Harris and Rocky Blyer were both injured, neither played in the game, uh, Chuck Knoll had to go with a makeshift offense. You know, long story short, the Raiders won 24-7, and two weeks later they dominated the Vikings to win uh, Super Bowl XI. But that was really the end of the Steelers-Raiders rivalry. Now, they did continue to play. They met again in the postseason in 83. Um, they did have big games after that, but for all intent and purposes, the Steelers-Raiders rivalry as we knew it basically ended with the 76th AFC Championship game.
0: Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Ed Gruver and Jim Campbell. They are the authors of Hell with the Lid Off, Inside the Fierce Rivalry between the 1970s Oakland Raiders and Pittsburgh Steelers. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream
0: with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.